0: Scientology is illustrative of what I want to talk about. In the, you know, if we take an extreme like a cult or Mormons or whatever, and then you look at the behavior of people in the cult. So this cult was started by L. Ron Hubbard, who, he was a science fiction writer. And he decided that his books would sell better um, as religion. Yeah. And so he created a religion. And it's just still science fiction. So you've heard of Tom Cruise yeah. and uh, who's the, the Saturday Night Fever, uh, uh, John Travolta. Uh, those are the two. They've got, Those are the two big stars, but Tom Cruise has especially been promoting Scientology. Mm -hmm. But what they discovered in this documentary is that the head of the church then took the lead people in it and he put them in two double-wide trailers and, uh, I mean, more or less tortured them, (laughs) you know, for... Years made them do menial labor and you know, you know, like a prison camp that they voluntarily submitted themselves to. And so, a lot of the people in the documentary are talking about you know, they get out of it and they look back and they say, Well, how did that happen to me? How, why was I so stupid (laughs) that I got into this thing? And of course. my point here is that we are all parts of systems that may in fact systematically deceive us. Let me give you the other illustration of that. Um, Do you know who Albert Speer was? Uh, He was uh, Hitler's he was an architect Mm -hmm. in uh, the Third Reich. And he he was just a good, middle-class German. Um, and he just wanted to be an architect. Mm-hmm. He really didn't have any... You He know, just wanted to be a good architect. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happens that Hitler becomes his means of becoming a good architect, but of course... And this is you know, after World War II. Speer ends up building many of the munitions factories yes. and participating in war crimes. Yes. And he's, of the Nazi war criminals, he's more, I mean, many of them were hung, but he, he was put in prison for like 20 years. And he writes about his life uh, and he he's asking the same question that the people in Scientology were asking. And they said, well, how could I be so stupid that I let this thing happen to me? Uh, how, you know, what he's really asking is, how is it that I was deceived? How And, and he's not talking about that somebody else deceived him, that he deceived himself. Um, that he recognized that in some fashion, uh, he, his ambition to be an architect was in some way inadequate. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could all, uh, you know, if that's your only ambition, if that's what you want, well, Hitler made him a great architect, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, at the cost then of everything. You know, it's sort of like a deal with the devil. Um, so the complicity and uh, many of the Germans in uh were Christians that became complicit uh that the head of the Niemöller talks about in the uh, you know they came and arrested the handicapped or the and he said, well, I was not handicapped. they came and arrested the unionists, the trade unionists. I wasn't a trade unionist, so I didn't worry. Uh, They came and arrested the Jews. Well, I wasn't a Jew, so I didn't worry. Uh, They came and arrested the Catholics, but I wasn't Catholic, so I didn't worry. Then they came and arrested me, and there was no one left to protest. Mm -hmm. That it's this kind of frog in the kettle sort of syndrome that we are part of. I think that it's not just when we're part of a cult or a part of some evil system like in Nazi Germany, but I think the way that we come to our very sensibility of right and wrong is through the culture or the family or the society that we're a part of. That is just instinctually, we think we can know what right and wrong is, but where does our instinct come from? Where, how have we learned this? uh that we've learned this through being enculturated into a particular understanding. Uh, the the picture then of a Christianity that does not take account of what I'm saying right now is the failure of Christianity in Nazi Germany. I think it's the failure of a Christianity in the United States because what Christians often imagine is that uh, being a Christian in no way means that they have to sacrifice participation in the culture at any level, uh, but being a Christian is just you can add those symbols of faith you know, without any sacrifice or suffering while remaining comfortable. We all want to be comfortable. That's precisely what these Scientology people, you know, that they get sucked into it. Why is John Travolta or why? Well, part of it because they believe that Scientology is what has enabled them to be movie stars. They literally believe that, you know, that it's created their success, and so our investment in our own success, our own comfort in some way can be a kind of deceiving sort of thing. This is David uh, Hernard talking about spirit. Seeing is never simply a reaction to what passes before our eyes. It is a matter of how well the eye is trained and provisioned to discern the richness, the terror, beauty, and banality of the world outside and within the self. That is, we're trained to see. Whatever we see, uh, you know, this is sort of our conversation in 1 John. What has precedence? Seeing or believing? I think most of us think seeing. You know, oh, I just saw that. But of course, what we're learning in the New Testament is know that we're enabled to see or our seeing is guided by our believing. Our belief system is is in some way determinative of what we see. Decisions are shaped by, vi- by vision, and the way that we see is a function of our character, of the history and habits of the self. This is David Harnett. Of the history and habits of the self, and ultimately of the stories that we have heard, and with which we identify ourselves. What we think is right and wrong, what we see, what we perceive, is something that we're trained to see, perceive, and think is right and wrong. Mm-hmm. What I'm driving at here in terms of ethics, can, do we know, you know, this was the Kantian idea, that you could uh, know right and wrong just within yourself through pure reason. But do we know right and wrong on the basis of pure reason through the resources only of ourselves? This was Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem. I don't know if you, you know, the Hannah Arendt is a reporter for the New Yorker. And Eichmann is the guy who set up the transport to the death camps. And when he's on trial, he quotes the Kantian categorical imperative. He says, well, I, you know, I would only do that which I would will to be done. That is, he, he's saying that what if everybody broke the law? What if, you know, I'm just a good bureaucrat. I obey orders. And of course, the guy's an evil monster. Not because he's some sort of diabolical devil, but precisely because he's an unthinking bureaucrat. Precisely because he's been shaped by the culture of which he was a part, and did not have the strength of mind to resist it. Right? Isn't it the case that to the degree that we let the culture shape us, to that same degree we are subjecting ourselves to a kind of deception? And it's not that we can just by strength of the will extract ourselves from a culture. That is, how do we arrive? How do we know what to do? Well, what we've described in terms of the church is that the church is an alternative culture. That we are enculturated into a new body, a new kingdom. And the question is not, You know, when it comes to ethics, it's not one of decisionism. You know, what do I do? A quandary. What do I do in a particular situation? We understand as Christians that our ethic is already decided for us because we're followers of Christ. This ethic is not, you know, going to make sense according to the ethical standards of the culture that surrounds us. Christian ethics makes it's impractical, right? Pacifism is totally impractical. Dying on a cross—that's not very good work, you know. That's not a very workable solution. So the the way in which we arrive or we understand a Christian ethic is not outside of uh, being inculturated into the body of Christ. So what is our ethic? Our ethic is. To be christian our ethic is uh you know our allegiance is to the church so consciousness is not so much a simple mental mirroring to become conscious of certain things you know if when i i was i've been working with a guy just i've worked with him a day out in the forest yeah. cutting trees And when we come to a tree, he'll pick up a leaf and say, well, this is a pin oak. And this is a... You know, he knows all the trees. When I look at a tree, I say, well, there's a tree. (laughs) But when he looks at a tree, he understands the kind of tree, he understands the characteristics of that tree. Well, that's true in all of our life, that we're trained to see things. We're trained to perceive things in a... a, uh, Not just that we... You know, a kind of blunt see. A self-deceived person is one of whom it is a patent characteristic that even when normally appropriate, he persistently avoids spelling out some feature of his engagement with the world. Our problem is that we would refuse to see certain things we would refuse even our own participation or to acknowledge our own participation in structures that in fact are evil. This is again, I'm thinking of Scientology or the Nazis or that there is this consistent willingness or unwillingness to spell out and say this is what I'm doing. You know, Speer never said, he, he said, "I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm not against the Jews." And yet he, he was part of one of the most monstrous anti-Semitic you know, movements in, in all of history, simply because he could not and this is Speer himself describing this that he, uh, he couldn't see himself truly. This is the way Stanley Hauerwas puts it. Self-deception results from an expedient policy of refusing to spell out our engagements in order to preserve the particular identity we have achieved. That is, if you're going to preserve your identity, there is a sense in which you can't tell the truth about yourself. You can't see the reality about yourself. The extent of our self-deception correlates with the type of story we hold about who and what we are. That is, how was is thinking in terms? You know, what is reality? Is reality some sort of basic rationalistic understanding? Is ethics in his understanding? You no, know, reality is actually a narrative reality. That the Bible is a picture, then, of a universal narrative, and that we locate ourselves or we locate reality in relationship then to that story. And our own life then is a narrative. What happens though is that we tend to skew the narrative. We tend to truncate it. We tend to, you know, for Spear, is it enough to be an architect? Well, that's a truncated story, isn't it? Because you could be a great architect and an evil person. You know, you could say the same thing about any number. You could be a great basketball player or, you know, whatever, and be an evil person. It's not enough. that It's not a a full-blown identity. And that's, unfortunately, our tendency is to, in some way, pursue those things that are an inadequate identity, not a full-blown identity. If it is to counter our propensity to self-deception, the story that sustains our life must give us the ability to spell out and advance the limits of various roles we will undertake in our lives. Can I, you know, find my identity in being a professor? Well, apparently not... Can you find your identity in being a worker at Walmart? Is that enough? You know, we could go through. Can you find your identity in being Hmong or in being a Mexican-American or maybe uh, that we all have to take up particular roles? And there are people then that will find their identity in being Mexican or in being texan or in being mong but that's inadequate that's sort of like spears being an architect that's not there's not a fullness of identity or an ethic then an ethical reality in that so that if we choose that sort of truncated narrative the danger is that we'll end up being equal, or at least we'll fall short of the, the the fullness that we are to have in christ This is Spear. I have always thought it was a most valuable trait to recognize reality and not to pursue delusions. In other words, what he'll say about himself, he said, I always thought I was an honest man. I always thought I saw things clearly. But when I now think over my life, up to and including the years of imprisonment, there was no period in which I was free from delusory notions. Who deluded him? Well, he deluded himself. You know, who deludes the people that joined Scientology? Well, they'll all tell you they deluded themselves. I mean, the the system is deluding, but they willfully participated in their own self-deception. I think that these extreme cases just describe the reality for all of us. So the sincerity, the honesty of Speer's autobiography are somewhat shocking. You know, you think, how could a man, this, he's really a, a, a likable man, a man with great integrity. How could he have served Hitler so well? There was no better soldier for Hitler than Speer. And so I think Speer's example is a warning that integrity and sincerity ethical honesty you know whatever whatever you want to call it in themselves are not sufficient safeguards against the seduction of evil we do often think of evil as that thing out there as you know uh, something that we could easily identify but what we have in this instance is well no actually evil is something that's pervasive my my sign there about God in him we live and move and have our being yeah but In the absence of God, we live and move and have our being in a negativity, in an absence, in uh, in in a failed story. So, our problem is that we are corporately deceived, right? That it's not just, oh, I'm deceived individually, but there is this corporate deception. This is Hannah Arendt on Eichmann the trouble with Eichmann was precisely that so many were like him and that many were neither perverted nor sadistic that they were and still are terribly and terrifyingly normal this new type of criminal commits his crimes under circumstances that make it well nigh impossible for him to know or to feel that he is doing wrong when Hanau was first signed, assigned by the New Yorker to go to Jerusalem and report on Eichmann on trial. You know, the, I don't know if you've seen uh, that the Israelis captured. They actually captured him in was it uh, in South America, and they, uh, you know, they threw a sack over his head. And they bundled him back to Israel. She said, "I thought I was going to go see a monster." some evil, and she's quite disappointed because what she sees is not some evil genius or some evil monster, but a man who is incapable of thought. He's incapable of any kind of uh, real creativity. Mm -hmm. And yet, he did his job transporting Jews to the death camps very well. Uh, he's normal, he's a good bureaucrat and yet he's radically evil so normativity fitting in uh, you know, enculturating ourselves into a particular thing uh, a particular people group or whatever uh, in fact is uh, that's precisely what she's identifying as part of the corporate deception. She comes up with a phrase, "The banality of evil." Have you heard this? Uh, that is, usually we think of evil as when you go to the movies, you know we all like to see movies about evil people, because aren't they the you know the mafioso or the you know, that's always so much fun to watch the violence and the... But her point is, well no, actually evil always looks the same. It always acts the same. There's an incapacity of thought. There's a banality. That is, it's boring. It's, it's, it's always uh, looks, it's just a, a pattern. This is what Sigmund Freud said about neurotics. Somebody asked him, well, why don't you do a, an analysis of uh, Dostoevsky? You know, analyze him as a, as a person. He said, well, why would I do that? What's interesting about Dostoevsky, yeah, he was a gambler. He had a drinking problem. He was a neurotic. He had all of those problems. And Freud says, I've, I, I know what a neur- neurosis is. It's just a mechanical thing. And that's the way that <clears throat> Hannah Arendt's describing evil. I think we could say it about sin. That's, there's nothing creative there. There's nothing new there but rather it puts the same stamp in a kind of mechanical fashion on all who undergo it. And I would say that about the cultures of this world, that if we identify ourselves in the way that our, you know, the cultures would have us identify ourselves, we're all going to look just alike. Uh, you know, what, you, you could go through, you know, we'll all be, I don't know, Trump supporters. Or I, don't, I don't know what, the, what that might look like. Uh, but the point is that, uh, this, is, this is Eichmann, he says, I felt myself to be Hitler's architect. Political events did not concern me. What's he saying? He's saying, well, I only was, I just wanted to be an architect okay, yeah, he's, he's anti-Semitic or he's, there's this strange stuff. Same thing with the Scientology people. They said, well, I was just interested in the self-help part of it. Yeah, I know it's kind of strange and there's a bit of a lack of ethics. And, and so a kind of passivity in regard to the reality and a willingness to check out of that reality. Speer admits that he deliberately made himself blind to what was happening to the Jews, to what was happening. I think we all have this, we, and we all know it about ourselves, that we have this capacity to disconnect from other people and say, well, that's happening to those people, but it's not happening to me. And both Niemöller and Speer are saying the same thing. That's the beginning of evil. Is that this when we stop, you know, recognizing ourselves in the other? When we stop being empathetic uh, with the other, this is Spear again. Before 1944, I so rarely, in fact, almost never found time to reflect about myself or my own activities. I never gave my own existence a thought. I often have the feeling that something swept me up off the ground at the time, wrenched me from all roots, and beamed a host of alien forces upon me. He said, I don't know how I got here. I was just, I, you know, a good family man, had nice children, liked to listen to classical music in the evening. Uh, not reflective, didn't think about himself. uh and in some way, because of his failed, you know, his failure of thought, he becomes evil in his own, in his own description. The, the language here is co- sort of interesting. Uh, in Scientology, they literally believe alien forces are in you and you need to go through, uh, uh Period of uh, you know uh, analysis, even Elron Hubbard kind of drove himself he, he actually began to believe his own stuff here. He went mad, he went crazy at the end of his life. Mm-hmm. Paul says that it's no longer I that do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. It's this alien force that is some way. I don't think Paul literally believes he's not responsible. But what he's describing is something that these people are describing. That we lose our own human agency at some point. We give ourselves over to powers. That we lose control of ourselves. In our, in, you know, in our passivity. In our unwillingness to make choices. I've talked before about M. Scott Peck, the people of the lie. Uh, this is from Peck. An important assessment of evil at a more popular level, he, uh, Peck suggests it is possible for humans to be taken over by evil, to believe a lie and then to live it, forgetting that it is a lie and to make it the foundation of one's being. He argues that there is such a thing as a force or forces of evil which are superpersonal superhuman which appear to take over humans as individuals or entire societies now i don't know what i don't know what to make of this other than to say i think this corporate mentality this social cultural mentality that if we allow it to shape us is it really demonic i don't know that but it might as well be right that there's nothing worse than this kind of mass hysteria or, or you know, or not even hysteria, but when the a kind of groupthink. But we're all subject to that groupthink if we don't consciously, you know, recognize it and check out from it. This is, you know, Walter Wink is a Christian theologian who has talked a lot about evil, about corporate evil. He's argued strongly in his major work on the powers there's a great deal to be said for the view that all corporate institutions have a kind of corporate soul, an identity which is greater than the sum of its parts, which can actually tell the parts what to do and how to do it. This leads to the view that in some cases at least, some of these corporate institutions, whether they be individual companies, governments, or even God help us. Churches can become so corrupted with evil that the language of possession, at a corporate level, becomes the only way to explain the phenomena before us. I've experienced it. I don't know if you've experienced it. Well, I know you've experienced it. You just may not know that you've experienced it. That is, that we we come into a group of people, and it, there is always an atmosphere, right? you know, you both probably know this being bicultural, that when you shift cultures, you shift atmospheres. You shift ranges of emotion. You know, in Japan, when I lived in Japan, there's a certain range of emotions, there's a certain atmosphere, and it just dominates, it controls you. I'm sure the same thing is true in Thailand, or being among the Hmong, or being in Mexico. Um, But I think that that can also operate at a a smaller level. Uh, That a company, a corporation, creates a kind of corporate culture. And obviously cultures create, you know. And that's what Walter Wink is describing. The reality that we're all shaped by these atmospheres, by these cultures. And of course, what what we're leading up to here, here is the failure Of humanity is the way that we would join ourselves together. Uh, If we would join ourselves for purposes like Spear that in some way are inadequate, well, that corporate community is also then subject to becoming evil, right? If we join ourselves, you know, to a Wall Street firm whose only goal is to make money. Do you think that could become evil? Or we join ourselves, you know, it doesn't, you could, you could describe all of this, that what happens with corporate cultures or cultures per se is that their story, their narrative is in some way truncated. It's too small. And if we find our stories then in these places, you know, being rich on Wall Street, or being a movie star or being a famous athlete or being you know all the different things that can be held up for us if that becomes a kind of end goal then of course we've we've joined in to the, precisely the problem that we're describing here and what week has realized well even churches then churches set upon growth numerical growth do you think they could become evil? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because in some way they've truncated the story. And that's just true of schools or whatever. So you uh,
1: say the, the goal? Like, like our goals. That's
0: what, I, I, that's think what our, I want out of my life. Right. I think that's our goals... Right. Yeah, I think our goals are key. And maybe in a way we're all afraid to say, because in a way, you know, I think we that we need to have our goals shaped by Christ in the Christian community.
1: Yeah, that is the true, you know, narrative. True. All the questions and goals, and you know, like that we uh, need to ask, but also we like fail to ask ourselves who we are. You know, like trying to like trying to identify ourselves, like you know, as a human being. Instead, we just like, oh hey, you know, I can be good with this. You know, I'm American, and I live here. I'm born here. And I uh, indulge myself into this type of culture, and let that be uh, the final answer. You know, and yeah, I can see that as like totally a fail. But yeah, but it's like you know so like very dangerous and you know dark that you know, we. Or even ask a good question, you know, of who we are, you know, as a person, but finding answer in the, in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah. Or, and I don't know that it's a one-off thing, you know. I think that we continually are reshaping our goals because I think we're so, maybe, maybe I'm just peculiarly perverse. But I think we, we all tend, to, in other words, this, the reshaping of our character is also then a reshaping of our goals. Mm-hmm. Right?
1: So what does it mean to... Because we're not creating a Christian culture, right? Cause it's already there. So we're coming into it. So what does it look like if... For us, Cause I have my own culture, cultures. It's not just one. You know, I have right. different cultures. You have the so when we come to Christ, what are we supposed to leave? Because like, I feel like in a way I cannot stop being Mexican. You know? Yeah, yeah. I cannot
0: stop being in a way American or. Right, so right. what does it
1: look like? Or how much are we supposed to leave?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's a wonderful question. Uh, and and. The, the, the question itself is, is pointing to to the answer and the complication of the answer. You know, does Albert Speer have to stop being an architect to be a good man? No, he can be an architect. Do we have to stop being Mong or Mexican to be a... No, obviously, those are just facts about us. That, uh, But those are not final facts about us. You know, do I uh, stop being a Texan or, uh, you know, speaking? No, we, we carry our culture into the church. And so the church is in a fulfillment of those cultures. It's it's something beyond yeah. those cultures. It's not in any way, in other words, culture per se, there's nothing wrong with, with our cultures, right? Nothing wrong with being white American or Mexican or Hmong or or an architect. Those are things that are harmless within themselves. But if being an architect is your identity, if being Mexican is your identity, then, you know, that in itself is a truncated inadequate story. And so I think what we come to in the culture of Christ is we bring the reality of our culture into the church. But in some way, it is a, 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 there is a cosmopolitan element to it. There is a, a kind of a world culture element to it. And maybe, maybe how to nuance this will be different. You know, I, uh, In Japan, I was never quite sure how this should work. Sometimes you know the, the Japanese church is a little bit sad in that American culture has tended to shape the worship service and the singing, and there's not a lot of uh, native Japanese songs. There's some, um, and so in a sense, I think we, as we come together from different cultures, different peoples, that that in itself then. Uh, begins to give us a glimpse of how it's to look Mm -hmm. I'm giving you an inadequate answer Uh, but the idea is that this uh, it it is a multifaceted identity that is not you know the thing about being an architect everybody understands that you know that's easy to grasp being from Texas, I got me a big belt buckle, I got me some boots and a big hat. Nothing complicated there, I'm a cowboy. That tends to be what we do with identity. We simplify. Oh, I got me a lot of, you know, either wealth or fame. They all tend to be very concrete, very simplistic sorts of things. And of course, what's missing is the ethical engagement a full-orbed ethical engagement of being a follower of Christ. Yeah. Am I, I, I don't know, am I speaking to what you're...
1: Because eth- ethics shapes culture, right? And in kingdom culture, it is like, I mean, you know, like you say, it's fulfillment. So in my mind, it's like, it just, you know, it's a failed culture. Is the new ethic
0: is that shape that culture? You are. I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, no. That ethics. That's the that's the point. Ethics is tied to culture. What that means is what you think is right and wrong, just at a gut level, is something we've all been trained in. In other words, this is the problem. I think that with a peaceable kingdom a peaceable Christianity. None of us are trained in that. The cultures of this world will tell you that's stupid. The way the culture of this world, you know, particularly in regard to violence, violence is always a necessity. And our participation, you know, the the greatest sacrifice, laying down your life. Well, in a culture, that means laying down your life for the purposes of a particular socio-cultural moment, and so, in a sense, that that harsh, you know, kind of uh, the reality of of nonviolence, I think touches up, touches upon uh, the. Call from Joel. Touches upon the the uh, the difference in the ethical imperative that we're under. Uh, how how do you arrive at the idea of nonviolence? I don't think there's any culture in this world that you're going to land there, or of peaceableness, or or laying you know agape love. You know you don't have, you don't have to think very long and hard to recognize. Those are peculiar characteristics of a Christian culture, or supposed to be. I mean, that's supposed to be what we're about. So that's sort of the answer there, Miguel, is that in some way we have to enact this self-sacrificial love for one another. And that's the goal in, in the culture of Christ. And I, I think that uh, what, you know, many, the cultures of this world will always have us take up the cross, Their cross. You know, every culture wants you to die. Every little nation state wants you to soldier on for them. Lay down your life for the greater good. But the idea in the church is, no, that's not the way that we achieve the ethic of Christ.
1: Like, you hear a lot of uh, that and, and questioning about, you know, how can I get that, you know, like, how can, how can I be a part of that type of community or that culture? Uh, I don't know, like, my thought is saying, saying that is, doesn't stop, it, it, if you're expecting and waiting for, for you to pluck into, like, no, like, a church, and, like, Be ready to be, you know, feel like, hey, you know, I'm going to feel that when I go to this church and worship with them, I can have that, you know, that type of love that I need to receive, and, and, uh, you know, people will, you know, like, love one another, and, but, I, I don't know, I don't know that I, I, I feel that way, that, you know, people are just going to jump into a, you know, church or community and feel, like, experience of love, and all that. Right, without, right. With, like you said, like, with, you know, like, without the attitude of, like, hey, I'm willing to die. I, I don't know. I don't know how I, I, I explained this really well. We we are expecting to be received rather than we are trying to live together expecting myself to give to, to I want to feel I want to be uh experiencing love in love. I want to feel I want to experience that love. You know, but if I'm not uh able or willingness to uh you know die and you know give up my myself, you know, I don't know what's uh, you understand what I'm
0: I understand exactly what you're saying. That is that, and you're using language here that's very interesting, you're saying you know, the, doing life together. And I think that's the, the problem, that in most churches, we're not. there's no expectation of doing life together. You're, you're doing Sunday together, or you're doing a day of the week together. But I think that to actually get at this thing, to become an alter, you know, a different kind of people, we really do have to do our lives together. We have to share in one another's lives in some sort of meaningful way, and that's what the you know the self sacrifice here is not. Oh, I'm going to go out and fall on my sword. Yeah. The self sacrifice is precisely in that doing life together, yeah. not doing. You know, I'm not going to pursue my own ambitions mm-hmm. at the expense of everyone else, but rather my ambitions are going to be a sh- be shaped by this community. Yeah. In other words, I am, I'm no longer ambitious for me. And I think that goes back to your original question, Miguel. Then this is the thing that's always grating on us, that we have to in some way relinquish then uh, our kind of selfish pursuits for our life so that even our goals are changed to fit into this alternative community
1: mm-hmm. I'm afraid a lot of people are missing out on
0: that they're living you know if you're yeah I think that, that uh, they're wanting to be good bankers or good business or you know Whatever it is they're doing, uh, and then what culture are they shaped by? If you want to be a good banker, a good businessman, and that's your primary goal, is it the go? Is it the church? Well, no, it's the culture that surrounds you. So, in some way, that uh, I, I, you know, I, I think we have to check out of the ambitions that would normally drive us. Yeah. Is that too hard to say? Yeah. Uh, that, uh, you know, the, the measures of success, the measures, the, the things that drive us, uh, the pursuits of our daily life, in some way, should be reshaped. By the you know, the culture of the church. Just as this culture that surrounds us has shaped our ambitions and goals, so we need to be reshaped by this new community of people. And I think we're all in process. That that that's a kind of, the kind of painful process. Or not painful, it's a beautiful, it's joyful. It's wonderful, but maybe sometimes it can be painful. Because in, in a way, there's the relinquishing, a transition from one culture to another. I mean, you look at people, I was just thinking of the Scientology people. They spent 30 years. They spent, you know, their lives. And then they look back and say, well, what was that? You know, and what Scientology does, it taps into people's ambitions and says you can be a famous movie actor and Scientology will help you. So that's precisely what Adolf Hitler did for Albert Speer. You can be a great architect and Nazism is going to help you. And what we have to do is, you know, we, the dangers will do that with Christianity. You can be a great athlete or you can, I don't know, whatever, uh, You can be a great businessman and Christianity will help you. No, I don't think that's Christianity. That, in fact, we just have to relinquish the ambition itself. And uh, and for an alternative ambition. So I think that, that... that may, on the surface, we may not look very different. We may go about, you know, you still go to Walmart and work. Uh, but I assume that, I, I'm not sure about Walmart, but, you know, I, I, I think it's like any corporate culture, that there may be people there that that is their life. You know, that is that is it, is to succeed there. And so we can still go and do our jobs uh, but in some way that that we recognize that's inadequate. That then, and all this to say, that then gives you a different ethic. That that your ethic then is reshaped uh, by the recognition of this thing. You guys want some tea or something? I I didn't offer one you.